I'm William Jess Laird. This is Image Culture. Today I'm speaking with the artist Loie Hollowell, whose colorful abstract paintings originate from the human body. Loie is represented by Pace Gallery and recently showed new work in her solo show Point of Entry at Pace Palo Alto. We recorded this interview one afternoon at Loie's studio in Ridgewood, Queens. Here is my conversation with Loie Hollowell. What's your uh, what's your schedule like in the studio in the space? Let's see. I get I get to the <laughs> studio. Okay, the the cat is inside Loie's sweatshirt and apparently just did something. I'm not <laughs> sure what. She's trying to fight with my hand. I think she sees my shadow through my hand's shadow <laughs> through the sweatshirt fabric. Um, so I get to the studio around ten every day. And I leave around eight, seven, eight. And then if I have a big, you know, deadline, I'll stay until like 10 or 11. Just because they've already managed to come up. Do you want to tell the story of the cats? What are the cats names? Yeah. Okay. So, okay. So I have two studio cats because I have a big backyard and there's tons of feral cats out there. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm pretty sure it's a legit cat colony. Some of them have been, um, what is called caught cat catch and release where they cut off their tip of their ears mm-hmm. to prove that, the, to show from a distance that they've been neutered. What's this one's name that has That's the ear Felix. Clip? So Felix, Felix has been neutered. CB, I think is a product of two that were not mm-hmm. fixed. So she's the kitten. CB cuddle baby slash cry baby (laughs) depending on the day. Yeah. Depending on the day right now, I'd say, uh, cuddle baby, but she's being really feisty because she likes to hang out in my shirt. Um, so these are my two cats, studio cats. I also have two cats that live at home with my husband and I. So I have four cats. Do the studio cats and the home cats ever no, meet each other? No, they're not allowed. My husband would never let that happen. Because <laughs> the studio cats are legit feral. They have worms. Yeah, it's, They're on they borderline like FIV, mm. feline AIDS. Um, <laughs> they're, yeah, they have lots of like dirt in their toes and um, like aggressive attitudes they're real fighters. I mean, they hunt everything that moves. They're survivors. Yeah, which is why they're great studio cats, because they'll kill a cockroach in two seconds. And no, I've never seen a mouse in here. Well, it's funny, because the first time I came over, I feel like Felix was relatively new, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And then every time I've come back, it's just been... I feel like Felix is more of a permanent <laughs> fixture in the, in the space. He's just made himself at home. I mean, first he just came around for the for the luxury... Uh, cat food. Uh-huh, yeah. And now he's... What's your brand of choice for Felix? I think it's called Wurva. It's <laughs> over there. It's like a, it's like a wet, it's like a, a different, you can get different kinds. There's Plug like Plug Wurva cat food. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, you're, you're not getting sponsored by Wurva. It's free ad. I hope they, maybe they will sponsor <laughs> us. That'd be cool. And how long have you been in this space? I've been in this space for a year. Yeah, I got the lease, a 10-year lease, a year ago. The building's pretty old. It was a sweatshop, like a legit sweatshop with rows of tables. I remember seeing it when it was in use. There's actually still a sweatshop next to us that's Mm -hmm. still uh, in use. It's kind of falling apart 
but um, they've got maybe 10 women that are working in there every day. That's surprising, right? Yeah. I mean, I don't know how they do business. I don't know how they're competing in this market. I mean, they aren't. The building's up for sale. I just mm-hmm. saw it on the Zillow or whatever the the, the, market, the real estate the real estate site yeah com thing yeah so um but this space when we got it there were still needles in the floor like uh, sewing needles mm-hmm. there were bits of thread kind of stuffed in every little nook and cranny do i feel like i remember you telling me something where when you first came in you had to kind of do sort of a purification oh i had a um yeah i had a a, a space healer come a south african <laughs> woman who my gallerist recommended uh-huh. and uh he hooked me up and she came by and she had a beautiful south african accent and she did some reiki on me and she had her sage and her music and she went throughout the whole space and you know put sage in every corner and she even did the basement um, this room got a very clear A-OK. The room in there the had some room. troubles. Yeah. So it's a bit of a different vibe up there. It's a different vibe. I mean, that's also where all the sculpt the sculpting is done. Mm-hmm. It's like where the real hard sweat and labor is is done here. It's in this room, it's much more peaceful. I'm just painting and it's really quiet. There's a lot of podcasting. A lot of po- not podcasting, a lot of like podcast listening in this room. Yeah. This is the color space. Yeah. That's the sculpture space. Yeah. 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 There's like WNYC blaring in that room and like really <laughs> quiet, you know, mm-hmm. podcast listening in here. So that's actually maybe a good way to talk about this development in your work, mm-hmm. that the surfaces are being built up. When did that start? I started building up the surfaces about two years ago now, a year and a half. I did it out of necessity because I really needed to see the chiaroscuro forms, these light to dark forms that I was creating with paint and illusion, but put into a more three-dimensional realm. And I thought I could either, you know, move into a complete sculptural space Mm -hmm. or I could have a subtle illusory shift that happened with actual, with an actual kind of a subtle buildup Mm -hmm. of shadow that would happen on these forms so that I... I don't know. Instead of like completely jumping out of the rectangle, I felt like there was kind of this, this in-between space that I could play with reality and yet still have a conversation with, within the rectangle, within painting. Mm -hmm. And, um, it's, it's led to a few developments that I had not anticipated, like the quality of, of line that's created with a hard edged form, with a form that's actually coming into space is one that you could never get with paint with illusion. Like if you have something that's, that's an object sitting in front of a flat space, that edge is always going to be reacting differently to the light mm-hmm. that's in front of it than the, than, than one might be able to create in an illusory space, say in that of a photograph or a painting, mm-hmm. you know, it's just, it's just, you're contending with reality. It's, you know, photography, drawing, painting, it can't contend with reality. So I, I like that challenge of conflating my desire to create, yeah, illusory space and real space. And I, um, sorry, there's a cat. Now the cat's emerging from the sweatshirt. Yeah. Um, I, do you think Brian had anything to do with it? I mean, it it strikes me as there, there's something, um, similar about, about, his work and your work that's being built up on the surface. Yeah. I mean, he's, 
he's a really skilled craftsperson when it comes to traditional and non-traditional sculptural materials. So I think when I, I, I definitely remember starting to question the nature of the flat surface and question how I could push that mm-hmm. with more than just oil right. paint and what other kind of viscous materials I had that are like qualify as paint materials. And I did talk to him about what I could use, but I think it, it kind of was me just experimenting a little bit in my studio with different kinds of materials, building it up and then having him come over and be like, Oh, that's, you know, why don't you try this, 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 or this. Mm-hmm. And I think his knowledge of materials definitely pushed me to come out much further right. than I would yeah. had I kept on using like paper pulp or, you know, sand mixed into the paint or other kinds of really, I don't know, much more natural, like all natural materials that I Mm -hmm. was using. Yeah. Well, that, that makes a lot of sense because I guess it does occur to me that even before the canvases were built up, there's always this sort of like textural quality on the surface, either, Mm -hmm. you know, if it's made with a sponge or if it kind of has these sort of, um, like you said, kind of pulpy quality, you know, this, this, or a sandpapery quality. Yeah. Yeah, well, I, I was building up a lot of texture with paint before I started physically building them up with what with what I'm using now, which is like a very um, high density sculpting foam. Mm-hmm. There's a there's an actual name for it, and I don't remember what it's called. It's okay, but uh, I, I think it's kind of what surfboard builders use to create uh, like a surf board design or yeah, any kind of before like before it's before it's glassed over yeah 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 um i yeah i i know the material that you're talking you about know, i can't it's remember very the... it's, it's it's a blue foam it's super dense it's not heavy because it's foam but it, it if you punched it you wouldn't really leave too much of a mark mm-hmm. be maybe a subtle 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 little dent where your knuckles were so that's what I'm using. And then I'm using kind of traditional material, more traditional music materials, like an acrylic medium and gessos and stuff built up on top of that to kind of solidify it and hold it, hold it together as well as like a, a, a um, another material that Brian helped me, Brian, my husband helped me figure out how to glue it onto the surface, some mm-hmm. like resin, some kind of crazy resin. Were you, were you always a painter? No, I was, I, I have my undergrad degree in sculpture and what I was doing was creating these like elaborate dresses that multiple women could wear mm-hmm. and kind of interact with at the same time. Like I built a dress that had a triangular skirt and at each point of the triangle, there was another bodice that came out mm-hmm. of the triangle. So like the three women could wear it, but you'd all be connected by this huge kind of parachute or what's it called? Like, a a parachute skirt in the middle. Like, yeah. so, so basically you could jump up and down and the skirt in the middle, this triangle in the middle would kind of raise up and down and kids could get under it and play <laughs> under it. And, and uh, the three women were like always connected together. Um, but all of my sculpture is always related to the body in some way I made, um, another dress I was kind of obsessed with like 1600s panier hoop, hoop skirts. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. like Madonna's the, that have the structure in them. Yeah. That have the big panier hoop, you know, the big kind of semi-circular hoop that comes out from the hips. Mm-hmm. And so I made m- multiple huge skirted dresses with big high heeled shoes, big, um, like claw 
clogs with wooden <laughs> heels that me and my girlfriend would walk around campus with and we'd have our friends wear naked suits or just be naked the- if they were into it <laughs> underneath and then they would jump out from under the skirt and dance around people and then we'd see like a campus official they'd like run back under the skirt so, and we'd so keep it was on kind of like a half half sculpture half performative yeah it was all of- performative i didn't even know about madonna's what what is it is it vogue what's the madonna music video where she comes out with the big hoop and all the kids come out it's also a scene from the nutcracker i didn't realize any of these things <laughs> i just thought like it was a later. great way for women to kind of hide things in the past mm-hmm. Like, like thinking, under these big, yeah, yeah. Like just thinking of the, the clothing of women, like how it, from the past, like how much could have been hidden, how many guns could be under there, how many like men hiding or women hiding under there that could be like playing with their genitals without <laughs> anyone knowing, um, just the kind of like the constrained nature of it mixed with the amount of freedom mm-hmm. and space that was under it, yeah. that it opened up was really fascinating And, um, so other performances I did, I I went with a a friend, we, we made each other naked suits and we pretended to be Adam and Eve. What is it? What is a naked suit? A naked suit. It's basically just, it was like a skin tight body suit that Mm -hmm. was basically just like a, a leotard. Okay. No arms or legs, just kind of like a. The bathing suit. Like the bare minimum. Yeah, the bare minimum covering. And from afar, one From afar, yeah. yeah, I would find, I would go down over to LA and find, because I was at UC Santa Barbara. So it's about two hours from LA. And I'd find a nude kind of underlaying bathing suit material, like Mm -hmm. a nude colored spandex that would match the person's coloring. Right. And I would make a suit for them and I'd paint on nipples and even find a little bit of like wig hair and sew it mm-hmm. onto the genitals to the guy that I, that I did this Adam and Eve performance with. I made him like a really nice large penis oh, to attach like onto a prosthetic? it. Yeah. Yeah. A like prosthetic. a boogie nights type yeah, situation. Yeah. 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 Okay. So it was just like an, an always kind of semi hard large penis surrounded by like a tuft of big black bush. <laughs> and we just like ran around campus and like hid in bushes and like rolled around in the grass. And what was the, what was the response from your, from your peers? I think people just thought it was funny. You know, it's like a, it was a very, um, conspicuous I mean, I, thing. Yeah. Yeah. It was kind of, it, yeah. And, but when I think about if I was a teacher watching me do mm-hmm. that now, I'd be like, Oh, Gosh, undergrad students. Oh, yeah. They're so funny. Well, I think that's... I, it's so, it's so <laughs> like, you know, young 20s girl feminist art. I guess so. But I mean, I think, I mean, they're, they're obviously similar things that you're preoccupied with now, you know? They totally and, are. I mean, I was thinking about my body. I was thinking about sex. There was a lot of preoccupation with my vagina. You know, you're just like totally trying to figure out your relationship to, and you're, you're trying to figure out your relationship to feminism and what, what feminism means to you mm-hmm. when you're in an undergrad situation. I mean, what was the atmosphere? Like I mean, when I was in school, like feminism mm-hmm. was, was really prominent in terms mm-hmm. of the theory we read in terms mm-hmm. of like the way we thought about like all sorts of structural problems. Yeah. And I was lucky to have a lot of professors, mm-hmm. um, Rosalind Deutsch, probably the most important 
who really kind of were vanguards of that way of thinking. Yeah. What was it at, at Santa Barbara? I mean, was, was that in the air? I'm sure it was, mm-hmm. but I did not, I didn't have those teachers. I didn't know where to find them. I didn't know who to access. Mm-hmm. Um, Santa Barbara in and of itself is a very like image, image conscious place. Mm-hmm probably more so than LA in general. Cause LA you've got all these different kind of enclaves, but Santa Barbara is just, I don't know. I mean, it was like surfer girls and surfer boys. Like really, it was so stereotypical. <laughs> Did you surf back then? <laughs> no, I never surfed. I was from a, a inland Northern California town. I could see you surfing. I but could I see you looked, getting into I it. I fit in, you know, I'm blonde. I'm was, I well, get, tall, we could get you a, a nude, a nude wetsuit and then you'd be, yeah, yeah. You'd be ready to go. No, I had one performance art professor who I really actually liked and all the girls had a crush on him. But his comment to me after one performance where I stood fully shaved, naked, and covered in white paint on a Grecian pedestal that I made, covering myself with pomegranate juice and moaning sexually, his comment after the performance was, you looked so much like a young boy. Did, have you thought about that? What's the relationship to like, were you thinking about young boy being a young boy or looking like a young boy? Mm-hmm. And so all of a sudden I was put in because I thought I was making the sexual commentary about my body, my feminine body, my sexuality as a woman. So I felt like, um, Oh shit. I'm not, I'm, I don't look like a woman, you know, like I'm making these like really intense, what I think is, um, these aggressive feminist performances. I didn't even, I hadn't even really been looking at Carly Schneeman at that point. I think I was looking at Anna Mendieta. No one was showing me who these people were. Mm -hmm. Well, that's kind of, I'm, I'm interested in that. Like in that there's, there's something, well, two things come to mind to me. Like there's, there's this element of like gender fluidity there when you strip everything back. Right. But that's not what I wanted. You know what I mean? Like that wasn't the comment I was making. That is something that I think as you're exposed, as you're exposed to more in your life, like you kind of are more aware of how your body relates culture, like what your actual body looks like culturally. But Mm -hmm. at this time, like I was just young, I was having sex for the first time. And I was, I'm like realizing like, okay, I'm definitely straight. I definitely like this very specific kind of masculine cisgendered man. Mm -hmm. So my, my way of wanting to be was like a breasted hipped you wanted to be this like fertility symbol. Yeah. Kinda. I mean, that's yeah. what you want. I mean, that's what I, that's all I saw being able to be or being attracted to as a model. And you, and you <clears throat> felt in that moment that you weren't that image. Well, I didn't know. I thought I was, I felt very confident with my, I feel very confident with my very, very small breasts and my, um, skinniness mm-hmm. And, um, my kind of, I didn't see it as being masculine. That's all I'm saying. You know what I mean? Like I identify as woman. And so to be, to have a man, like an older man put that on me Mm. was very shocking. And I think at that point, I actually, a lot of things opened up while it hurt. A lot of things actually opened up. Like I, I did start to realize 
I don't fit into the like Barbie mode. Mm -hmm. There's, it was just these kind of moments when you're through art making, when you're young and you're making work about your body, like these realizations about yourself come much quicker. I think because I was always making it about myself. So like very, by the time I was done with undergrad, I was like, okay, I, I'm, I, I look one way on the outside, like I'm blonde, I'm tall, I look feminine, but on mm -hmm. the inside, there is something in me that feels very masculine in a kind of a cultural way, a American cultural way that we create masculine. I think, I think too, that there's, when you're young, mm -hmm. these kind of, these sorts of revelations about how you're perceived, you know, how, how you think about yourself and then how you're perceived by everyone else. Yeah. They carry so much weight. You know what I mean? Yeah, totally. Um, so much weight. I mean, harmful, harmful things are done at this time. Yeah. And when you're not given like a, a good grounding on how to process them in your ch young childhood, then those things just become disastrous. Yeah. But I think I could have taken that as like, oh, that guy, that, that teacher is not seeing my breasts. Like, I have breasts, you know, at some point they will make milk if I'm to have a child, like that's the ultimate usage of these tits and why, you know, why, why, um, can they also not be sexualized as one would a larger set of tits? So you had this experience mm -hmm. and that was, that was your junior year. That was my, yeah, I think it was my junior year. So where, so you said it opened up all these things. So where did you go from there? How did you, you know what? I started painting. Well, <laughs> so, see, I started so there you go. Paint. Something came out I of this. I was like, okay, people are not getting, I'm trying to be this. I'm trying to make these like conversations about sex, right. but I don't have the body of the women that were making these performances that I'm actually just starting to look at Cara mm. Lee Anna Mendieta. I also was really into Pipilati Reist at the time. So I didn't have that body. Not that you have to, but that was the kind of, I, I just didn't see any other way to go into it without being, without having to totally change some kind of structural, deeply structural way of how I look at myself. And I don't, mm. maybe in retrospect, I wasn't ready to do that digging yeah. in the work, in the art. So I started painting nature. I started painting, um, fantasies. So I, you started painting that last year of your undergrad? Yeah. I started painting my senior year, which is relatively late. I mean, it strikes me yeah. you know, given how adept you are, you know? Yeah. I mean, I don't know about that. I, 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 I paint, I started painting really intensely. Mm -hmm. Um, there was definitely, a like a fervor that started once I realized that I could put all of these conversations I was having with myself, my body onto a flat surface and have that be much more direct right. than the performative work I was doing before. I don't know. I guess it was something about surrealism, like starting to look at surrealists as a mode mm -hmm. for conversation. I mean, I knew, I knew, Frida Kahlo, but I really started looking at Frida Kahlo. Who else did I start looking at? Max Ernst. I mean, just the real base. I was really, really basic. Well, no, but, but the, the, the great surrealist painters. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And you started, you were, you were painting landscapes at that time. What were the first I was paintings? making surrealist kind of cartoony landscapes with morphing figures of bunnies and children and 
characters from my, of that had like the face of my brother or the, my face or something like molded into this something a, a surrealist yeah, element yeah, yeah 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 with like melting hills and um yeah do you think uh i know your i know your dad was a painter yeah so that was why i had never painted also as a reaction to him okay and his very formalist education from a yale perspective of like 1970 well, I mean, I, I know you, you've told me you grew up at Camp Hollowell. Yeah. Yeah. I grew up on kind of like an so arty, an arty co- community in that my parents created on their acre of land outside of UC Davis where my dad taught, uh, a painting and drawing and for, for, you know, he just retired, but we moved there when I was one. So yeah, it's just talking about the relationship, like a woman, a daughter's relationship to the father, I guess is so boring. It's so age old, you know, that those are the cats. I don't know if you can hear them. (laughs) I hope we can hear them. Gosh, I am not a cat person. I don't know what happened. I thought I was a dog person. Now I have that kitty disease. You know, you get that neurotoxin stuff that makes you want to like have sex with your cats. No, I don't know about the neurotoxins. Know about no, that? what is no? Tell yeah, me about this. I mean, I think I kiss them too much, and maybe get some of their poo in me or something. I don't know <laughs> what it is, but it makes you like just have intense desire to be with them. It's yeah. the cat lady disease. Okay, yeah, it's like sure. a real thing. If you don't eat their poop for for like a while, it goes away. Okay, yeah, and this is just something that happens very like in trace amounts. Yeah, you know, because <laughs> you kiss your cats. Well, one do I do. Yeah, no, I mean it's a real thing. People it's, tend people who have people who have cats tend to ha- get more, more cats. cats. Yeah. yeah, and so now I have two cats. I had one. Now I have two. Who knows? You know, you could come back in a month, and I might have five I, cats. I might call someone if I come back <laughs> yeah, in their five. Please do. Please do. Well, you were talking about your dad, the relationship that a daughter has with the father. Yeah, or you know what the pa- the do- the the child has with the father. Any child Mm -hmm. who goes into the same, who, who starts to get the inclination that they want to go into the field of their parent. Yeah. It's complicated and, and ultimately, it's ultimately amazing because Mm -hmm. how lucky one is to have a, a parent who can kind of guide them. But it take, it took me until very recently to, um, take his words and turn them into something that I could learn from whether, rather than react against, Mm -hmm. um, because he's not someone who's going to talk to me about the quote unquote content in my work, you know, the kind of the, um, the element of maybe where I'm trying to express a sensation of having my period or being penetrated or having an abortion or any kind of like female body driven content is not something he's interested in having a conversation of a conversation about through painting. He Mm -hmm. would talk to me about it mm, in diff in a difficult way as the way a lot of fathers as a father. Yeah, Yeah. sure. He would talk to me about that, but I would probably prefer to just go to a sister, one of my sisters or my mother. So in that way, I can't have that conversation that I'm having in my work with him. But when it comes to form, which is this central, you know, the kind of primary driver of the kind of images I make, 
he is a hundred percent there and the best teacher I one could ever hope for. I mean, the, the students who had him in undergrad, him as their undergrad teacher, friends of mine who have since moved to New York say that he was one of their best teachers mm-hmm. and they're all still making work. So he, he talks shop together. Yeah. We talk shop. We talk about color. We talk about light. We talk about space. We talk about texture, all the things that are the phenomenological elements that make, honestly, that make a painting good. Mm-hmm. You know, those first things that you see, just what you see when you walk into a space before you start, your mind starts like deconstructing. Before you get into the content. Yeah. Before you get into the content and color is content. Everyone has a different relationship to color. I think the problem with a like a Greenbergian way of thinking mm-hmm. is not taking into account the the historic reference to color, the gendered references to color, you know, the site-specific, country-specific relationship to color that is really, really, really hard to separate from a phenomenological experience. Mm-hmm. I mean, those things are so cr- closely related and so deeply ingrained into our subconscious that it's hard when you see something that's maybe a, a strongly red painting, you know, has a lot of dominant red tones to separate that experience from something cultural in relationship to red, because so many, you know, so many cultures have a different relationship to red and that color, that, that kind of relationship to color can go through every different area on the spectrum. So in that way, I, I do think about color as content Mm -hmm. and there's a long history of people who are dealing with that Hilmoff Clint's dealing with relationship to color. Yeah. I, I learned about her for the first time because mm-hmm. she is, I guess, a bit of a forgotten figure or, a, mm-hmm. or not forgotten, but mm-hmm. never properly recognized for what she actually did. I mean, she right. made the first like really cohesive abstract paintings, really. I mean, I, from the little bit I know there was a real, she was really coming from the body, like mm-hmm. really coming from the mind and, and also then again, her cultural relationship to those colors. Right. Where what it what was it? Like yellow is feminine and blue was masculine. I forget what her her signifiers were, but there's the there's the whole history of kind of transcendental painting color relationships. Um well, I, I remember her approaching I mean maybe this is one of the reasons she was not welcome into the into this group of abstract painters is uh-huh. because I think of her as as approaching things like color and form from a place of spirituality. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that a lot of the other, I mean, mostly male abstract painters were, were thinking about things, you know, they, they only want to talk about things being like, you know, perceptual or rational. There was this very kind of hard attitude towards it. Right. Well, I mean, Kandinsky was talking about color from in a very spiritual way. I mean, spirituality of color and, and music and, um, kind of something, you know, like the color having a soul. Mm-hmm. And I think his language though was his way that he was writing about and expressing it came from a Western kind of literary yeah. way. So he was able to translate his ideas verbally and, and, you know, verbally into something that fit a structure. Whereas I don't think, I think Hilma was really out there, mm-hmm. <laughs> you yeah. know, yeah. and she embraced that. And I, I don't know. I mean, I don't think she, uh, she didn't 
I don't know. I don't know. It didn't seem like she bought into that structure of, of needing a kind of a financial gain from mm-hmm. selling her work. Um, but I don't know enough about her. I mean, neither do I, but to there's make any kind of statement. There's not enough information there. You know I mean? Yeah. I mean, there is now I have this, that's huge some of the stuff of that's hers. happening. Um, I have a huge Hilma book down there. Oh, I see it. Yeah. Clint. Yeah. Um, it's at the bottom of a big stack. Yeah. Anyways, uh, where were we going? Anyways, yeah, I was talking about my my dad's relationship to form and how I can learn from that. But the whole undergrad experience of me doing performative kind of sculptural, quote unquote, feminist work <laughs> was in part when I deconstruct it now a reaction to him right. and his strong anti-body, anti-ante-body, anti-relationship to the body in his work. Right. Even though at the time he was painting my mom's body, both nude and in like leotards, pretty consistently in every single painting. And um, I think using her feminine form to kind of have some conversation with art history that he was only constructing through a, like a formalist formal mm-hmm. way. And I'm like, uh, <laughs> excuse me, you know, this is objectification right. and she's buying into it and you've bought into it. And you know, how could you not in this day and age have a, have a way to defend yourself father for these egregious actions. So there was definitely some, an antagonistic relationship around art there. Totally. And once I started abstracting the, the The bodies Mm -hmm. in my work and kind of playing with geometry and the edge of the painting and really looking at light and space and contrast he has completely become invested in my practice. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. and it feels amazing, but it's also time for me to like start to learn, you know, to not get so wrapped up in a compliment and to see what he's also missing right. from looking at the work and, and what he's missing is very much central to how the, a certain piece came to be. Yeah. So, um, that's probably that's hard. my father. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think I we mean, all you have kinda... that relationship with making art and your dad, right? Yeah. In a different sense. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think, I think that we all really have this, uh, we really crave those compliments from mm-hmm. our parents yeah. and from oh, these important people and totally compliments from a parent, not only a parent, but Someone who's in your field, yeah. you know, who's like successfully in your field. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, it's a hard thing to, to start to realize that, that they might not actually understand exactly what you're doing or yeah, they might hard. be on a different page. And, and mm-hmm. with the parents, it's, you know, it's obviously it can be generational too. Yeah. So, and it um, happens at a separate, it happens later. I think what happened later for me, you know, you realize your parents are just people at yeah, some absolutely. point, you know, yeah. maybe you leave for college and you start to realize that at some point and it, it takes a slow kind of sad reckoning, <laughs> you know, that they have their intense flaws 
I think for some people, they realize it a lot sooner. It took till undergrad for me, but it's only taken until, you know, moving to New York to really realize how separate I am in terms mm-hmm. of my artistic needs and my practice and how I enter my work. Yeah. What about your mother? Was she an artist as well? She's a, she's a very creative person. She was a cartoonist for a long time, a political cartoonist for the local paper. She makes clothes. She's the one who taught me how to sew Mm -hmm. to make all these performance outfits. Um, she's a really big burner. She goes to burning man. (laughs) You know, how long has she been going? I don't know. Is she an original burner? No, God, no. She's been going since, I don't know, man, 15 years, maybe 15 years, give or take. That's enough. That's, I think that makes her, um, to, you know, she's gone so much that she had to be hospitalized during one burn for dehydration, the dust, dust. yeah. Dehydration and that cough and that cough. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. So she, uh, makes clothes like really eccentric, funky bright neon clothes for Burning Man that she also just wears all the time. Um, but she's a very sexual lady. I mean, she gave me a vibrator, I think as a Christmas present on my 18th birthday, (laughs) I had yet to masturbate and I don't know how she knew this, but I, on your 23rd birthday, my my 18th birthday, I I hadn't masturbated. And I was going to say, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have believed you. <laughs> oh, 20. How old did you 23. think? 23. Oh, 23. You know, even though I was very comfortable with my body, I was like terrified to touch my vagina. And she gave me this vibrator. She's like, you will love this one. Like or something as if she had like a selection she knew to choose yeah, from. Yeah, she was like, this one's great, but you should start here. Yeah. It's really the more Here's fundamental. Here's a good starter. You know, you can pack this in the bag with you when you go to college. It's convenient. Yeah. Yeah. That's the Battery kind of woman powered. she was, is. Um, that's cool. Yeah. She's a free, free loving lady. I guess we were talking about moving from performance to painting. Mm-hmm. And then we kind of jump back to talk about your dad, but... I'm curious, when you started painting, you were doing these sort of surrealist works, and I still think that your work has a lot to do with surrealism, mm-hmm. but what was the, um, like, when did you make the the jump to painting? Like, I think about your painting as kind of working with a series of symbols, and mm-hmm. it's almost like a language, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, they're motifs that get repeated, and um, when when did that start? Like, when were the first symbols put into motion? It came about from an experience I had. I was making surrealistic, tightly rendered landscape paintings Mm -hmm. of cactuses with fingers and um, big gooey plants with vagina-like folds on the center and thinking of them as portraits of women friends. Mm -hmm. And... um, I then got pregnant accidentally. It was a a post very long, um, relationship that I had. So I was really depressed. I was seeing this new person. He got me pregnant, blah, blah, blah. Went upstate for a residency, uh, found an amazing Planned Parenthood up there, got an abortion. And, um, it was all 
a very wonderful experience in relationship to the women I was dealing with mm-hmm. up there, the, the women at Planned Parenthood, the, the artists, the female artists that were at the residency who were helping me out. But the relationship I was having with the, the male partner was horrible. I mean, there was just like some, he was really sad about it, kind of aggressively sad about it. About, about you making that choice. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was not just my choice. Like I, 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 he was in agreement. Like there was a conversation. There was a lot of conversation. Um, he wasn't able to be there with me for whatever reason. Um, so I was there by myself with a, a, a friend that I'd met at the residency who was out in the lobby. Um, but it was a really intense experience in that I was having like all the stuff being, you know, all the stuff gets built up. So it's being sucked out of you. And it's a really crazy feeling to have the like pressure being sucked out. Um, and let me just throw in here. This is something that needs to be talked about like much more openly. Like I think abortion is a a physical act. Like what that experience is like. Yeah. Like what the experience, like actually what happens and how simple it is. And also like completely life-changingly important for a woman to be able to make that decision. And also, yeah, I, I also think that, you know, the experience of menstruation is just like beautiful and powerful. And I love talking about, I don't know if it's just all women, but me and my friends, we talk about our periods all the time. I mean, there are some great fucking stories that come out mm-hmm. from times of blood flooding. Yeah. Um, so as there are with ejaculation stories, you know, so I just, I, I suppose don't know. So. I can't remember the last time I had a, oh, God, just a I really remember. positive ejaculation yeah. sesh with <laughs> yeah, that's all my true. I guess, male friends. Uh, hmm. That's not to say it's not an important thing that happens. Right. Yeah, that's true. I guess I do like hearing like men's stories of their prepubescent and early puberty <laughs> stages with ejaculation. <laughs> Um, uh, anyways, so I, I talk about this abortion very descriptively because I think that it's, um, was just an amazing experience. It's such a positive experience and also just beautiful and painful all at the same time. The question is, how did you come about, how, how did you come to creating symbols in your work? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. And I was, I, you know, I'm answering the question in a very roundabout way. Well, we've taken a couple stabs at it. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so the, the answer starts from a very physical place right. with the experience of having an abortion Okay. and the, uh, pulsating pleasure and pulsating pain that came with that experience. And in a way, in, in an effort to try and describe those experiences, I realized that the plant paintings, these plant metaphors that I was doing before in this kind of very traditional surrealistic manner, mm-hmm. um, as I was explaining, yeah, uh, would not suffice. So I tried to create a symbol or a shape that described my vagina mm-hmm. and from that shape would come energy lines or, or blood drips or light streams or pain pokes or some kind of expressive 
visual analogy for what my vagina was experiencing in at certain times mm-hmm. in my life. Most clearly for me at that time was the experience of this abortion. So I made a bunch of black and white drawings trying to describe that painful and pleasurable experience. So that then sparked a kind of a, a an explosion of creating shapes that described other parts of my body. Mm-hmm. Like how can I make a full bodied, a, a full figure of myself in a painting without using any very directly recognizable body parts. Mm-hmm. And this also led me to looking at a lot of other artists that I hadn't even, I don't know how I came across them, but I started just seeing these things popping up in Instagram or popping up here, popping up there, like, um, G.R. Santosh, he's an Indian painter mm-hmm. and he was painting in this group or kind of associated with this group Is called tantric? the Neo-Tantric, yeah. the Neo-Tantric yeah, painters. Yeah. And so there's a lot of, of men actually that come out of this classification of Neo-Tantra and, um, a lot of ge- geometrically abstracting the body, the female body. It was much more kind of symbolic rather than expressive. Mm-hmm. You know, for me, they're, they're, they are my body. They are my experiences. And by abstracting them, I think that creates a universal conversation, but it's also something that still is very personal. And um, different artists I was looking at who were also abstracting the body, like Hilma of Klint or G.R. Santush, um, it was still kind of a, 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 a like a, a step removed. I think for me, it was, it's always been trying to put myself as the first person. The conversation I'm having is always mine. Mm-hmm. And, um, but what happens then is I get another person in my life, like my, who's now my husband and his penis, yeah. Brian, Brian's penis, <laughs> a beautiful penis. I was hoping we'd become, come here and talk about Brian's yeah, penis. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So Brian's penis has become a, a character in my paintings and I, I use it because I know it and it's in, it's, it's painted in relationship to our landscape together mm-hmm. and our physicality together. I mean, there is there are penises, you know, that, that are singular in the painting. There's no like other vagina in relationship to it. And in those, I, it's kind of like a, it's almost like a tribute, you know, like this, (laughs) yeah, I do know. Like this uh, singular phallic or drooping or totem shape. Well, I think that's important because I think, I think that, you know, maybe an important distinction in the work is that it's not, this isn't any, this isn't anything. This is, this is you yeah. and your husband, you know, yeah. like it's, it's, uh, and no one needs to know that I'm telling everyone that, <laughs> but you know, no one needs to know that to, uh, understand the work. Well, yeah, of course. But I think, I think that there's something important there about thinking about reputa- uh, representation versus self-representation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's yeah. critical. Yeah. And I, 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 I think this is the only way I can create figurative work and work with, um, kind of a landscaped or body bodily representation is doing it from a place of real bottle, like knowing Mm -hmm. deeply from myself what I'm painting. Um, 
in undergrad and grad school, I was making paintings of an ex partner, mm-hmm. long-term partner. And I was making paintings of him and myself, and I would be strangling him or spying on him. He was a central character in the work. And he expressed to me on no number of occasions that he was uncomfortable being that character. Mm-hmm. And yet I continued to put him in the work because I was like, you know, this is my experience. Right. I'm telling the story. Mine, 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 mine. And, um, we ended up breaking up for a number of different reasons, but that became, um, a really important question for me in the next relationship. Like how can I use their body? How can I objectify their body in a, um, like a glorifying way, glorifying in a, like a, a loving way Mm -hmm. rather than a, um, a selfish way. Symbolism offered a, 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 you know offered a way for me to do that. And also kind of layering, <clears throat> layering the message under a, a veil of strong light mm-hmm. and, and color and tone. And I think, as you said, you, you know, you don't, you don't necessarily have to know all this to, mm-hmm. to get this work, you know mm-hmm. I mean? Cause it, it is, it's very, um, I mean, I, I think you've, you keep using this phrase like tightly rendered. Mm-hmm. I think there is like something there's really, it's really tightly rendered this yeah, work, you know, yeah. and, uh, wrist painting, knuckle painting. Is that the, is that the, I don't know. That's what I call it. You know, you're just, you're, you're a lot of the little elements of my painting are all swirls, like kind of mimicking hair. Yeah. Like up in the corner there. And, yeah. They're yeah. just these tightly little rendered areas. And, um, you're not making full kind of bodily Picasso gestures. You're Mm-mm. making very draftsmen sitting at a table doing these tight little dra- uh, draftswoman movements. Is that um, how your is that how your dad paints? I'm just curious. He's a pointillist, so he is even more than that. He's making very subtle little, right? You know, ups and downs with his wrist. But he's not making wrist. these big. No, God, no. Expressive he's motions. Just layers and layers of pointillism. Mm. I have one specific artist who always comes up mm-hmm. when people talk about your work mm-hmm. and we haven't mentioned her yet, but mm-hmm. I'm curious to know what you think about this kind mm-hmm. of once and for all. Everyone always talks about George O'Keefe yeah. when they, when they look at your work mm. and I can see it, mm-hmm. but well, I, I guess I'm just curious. I'm, I'm curious yeah. why you think that comes up and, and how you feel about that relationship. Yeah. The relationship is my relationship to George O'Keefe continues to grow. I think my appreciation for her continues to grow. Another artist that is, um, has been a big influence and can, and the, the influence is seen really readily is, is, you know, Judy Chicago. Yeah. And, um, I think Judy Chicago is, uh, is for me, a, a you know, a, con- a conceptual influence. Um, her work is, is, uh, conceptually driven, I would say there are strong formal guidelines and guiding principles in her practice, but it, it seems to come from a a place of politics as much as form, if not more on the political side. And I think what, what continues to keep me fascinated with George O'Keefe is that she is coming from a place of, of looking at nature, Mm -hmm. of being present in the space of her, of her practice, uh, and her, I mean, her making, you Mm -hmm. know, the act of making her images. And, um, 
And because of that, there's a very, and because of the place she was making in New Mexico and the light and the, the contrast and the color, there's a very, um, strong sense of, of, of a present energy in her work. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me that a conversation of a form is the thing that pushed her practice, you know, as she deconstructs the, um, as she deconstructs the, the, the front of her, one of her buildings with that black door opening, yeah. the, the, the opening of the door, she continues to pare it down and pare it down and pare it down until she's giving herself such a simple, clear question of color relationship and tone relationship. And she, you can tell from the amount of work that she's made and the amount of images she makes of one scene that she's just digging into one question over and over and over and over again. It's not a one-off, you mm. know, she, the question, uh, seems to haunt her until she's really gotten it to a place where she is satisfied to turn her car around and go back home and go out the next day. But she continues to make these images over and over again and of, of one subject until she's got it. And, um, have you done that trip out there? Have you, have no, you visited? I have never been out there. Oh, I was wow. conceived <laughs> in New Mexico in Roswell. That's where I was conceived. But since then I have never been back. Mm -hmm. Although conception is not a baby. So I actually have never been there. Well, see, <laughs> see it all comes back around. Um, so no, I've never been, but I, I really want to go, but I do know that I do know, I don't know this, but I sense that the light in her painting, when I compare it to the light that she was painting from New York city yeah. during her time spent upstate at Lake George and in the city proper, um, the light was very different from the very open, solid streaming color that was given to her by the New Mexican sun. Yeah. And I think when I, when I've, now that I've been in New York for 10 years coming from Northern California, there's an intense difference of light and you just can't describe it until you've spent time out there. The light is just powerful. Everything is absorbed and almost like washed out mm -hmm. from the light. And in New York, it comes in a dappled way. It comes through trees. It comes through buildings. It comes, you know, off the lake. Much cooler. Yeah. It's here. much cooler. It's reflected. It's more, well, it's, it's also warmer in that it's, it's more orangey, you know, it's like kind of like a, like a, the summer heat. It has that like dappled kind of heated way about it, but yeah, also cooler in mm -hmm. that it's not going to fucking burn your, sear your skin off. <laughs> um, but, you know, you look at, you compare the George O'Keefe landscape mm -hmm. out in New Mexico with a birch field, the dappled, you know, little area behind his house where he's mm -hmm. painting. It's just completely different light spaces. And um, I think that the Northern California light that I come from is much more like the New Mexican light and yeah. that it's like just going to blow out your eyes. Um well, maybe we should, uh, maybe we should leave it there. Yeah.
that was our conversation. I'd like to extend a big thank you to Loie Hollowell, to Brian Caverly, and to Pace Gallery. And as always, to the show's producer, Sarah Levine, as well as to Jack Staffan and Eliza Callahan for our music. Thanks for listening, and remember that you can see my portraits of each of our guests on Instagram at William Jess Laird, as well as on our website. Have a great week.